In the early days of the internet, radical libertarians were scattered, lonely, and faceless. Without direction, they resigned to scour the web, sifting through content providers in a wasteland plagued by YouTube demonetization, Facebook jail, and covert internet censorship. But then, in 2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com. All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Read Rothbard. <laughs> well, hello and welcome to the actual Anarchy Podcast, the podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian anarcho-capitalist perspective. This is going to be a fun one. We are doing The Outlaw King, or just Outlaw King actually is the title of it. It is a Netflix film, and this is episode 107 of the show. We do have a special guest that we will introduce on the last night's portion of the show in just a moment. So let's say hello to Robert before we get into that. Hey, what's up, everybody? All right. That's a, that's a pretty solid contribution to the show thus far, Robert. I do that's appreciate what I do. that. On the last I, show, I come I, in and I anchor the show. I'm the anchor, and you're the ship, you know? Right. And we're steering this right into the rocks right now. Uh, but I do want to mention that on our pri- previous show, I did say that I really appreciated your contributions to the show. I really did enjoyed you your work. Is yeah, true. Yeah, it's true. It's I swear. It's nice to hear that after all this time that I'm accepted and appreciated. I like it. Thank you, Daniel. Just the way I you appreciate are. You. You were born this way, Daniel. You do such a good job on the show. You <laughs> produce it. You get on all these great guests, and you talk on the show too. It's great. Right. And our last show was on Action Point, which I thought was a really interesting movie. Though terrible, uh, it had a lot of discussion points. Now, this movie, which we will get into in a moment, I think was far better, but also has a plethora of things to discuss. Yeah, it's a little bit much more better. Betterer. There's a better script. There's better acting. There's like actors that are like proper actors, actors that you would recognize in other stuffs. And um, it's an interesting film. It's kind of, if you watch Braveheart, you'll know that William Wallace interacts with Robert the Bruce. And Robert the Bruce is kind of this reluctant Scottish king who doesn't want to get involved so much, kind of wants to go along to get along. But then in this film, he's had enough. And he's uh, claiming that the people are crying out for freedom. And he's going to wage a war. Nothing screams freedom like a war. So on that note, why do we get into the last nighter's portion of the show? And uh, just to re- reiterate, the show notes and more for this will be at actualanarchy.com slash 107. And here we go to the last nighter's portion of the show.
everyone. It's Daniel and Robert, The Last Nighters. We are talking about Outlaw King tonight on this 50th episode of The Last Nighters. You can find the show notes more at lastnighters.com. We do have a special guest tonight, and we already have about 25 or so minutes of pre-show content that is available for our Patreon supporters. And we also promised to do a little bit of overdrive at the end. So there's going to be lots of bonus stuff to talk uh, about with our guest. And you can find that at lastnighters.com slash Patreon. Ways to support the show, keep us going, keep the lights on, and all of that good stuff. Uh, Robert, we have the Anarcho-Viking. Oh, we do. Olaf. Yeah, he buddy. is a Misesian, Hoppian, all-around good dude who originally hails from Sweden. So why we're talking about a Scottish movie with him, I don't really know. But it has a lot of themes that i think are really in his wheelhouse so olaf the anarcho viking welcome to the show why don't you just give your uh little bio to the audience before we get into the description of the movie and into our further discussion sure thanks for thanks for having me it's uh, it's great to be on the show um yeah so i'm olaf i'm from sweden originally uh, left left sweden 10 years ago um or i actually i left sweden uh, when I was uh, probably 14 years ago, I lived in Italy for four years. So I speak both Italian and Swedish fluently. And uh, I do speak some English too. So yeah, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. That'll help <laughs> with our audience. I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, went, uh, you know, moved to New York, went to college in New York. I uh, have a bachelor's in mathematics and statistics from uh, Columbia University. And, uh, you know, I was pretty left, left leaning, I would say, most of my life. Uh, until, until about, but I, I, I guess my instincts have really always been, I had many libertarian instincts. It's just libertarianism was never on, it was never on the radar screen. It just didn't exist. So you either, you know, you fit into the uh, sort of left liberal camp or the, uh, um, more slightly moderately conservative camp. And those were really the only options. So I've fell into the left-leaning camps because I was uh, very much against uh, war um, and, uh, you know, U.S. intervention in, in uh, foreign countries. And, and so I, it really, yeah, I got, I got introduced to Ron Paul and I, I liked the guy. I had sympathies for him because of uh, his stance on, on the warfare state. But I just couldn't let that uh, universal health care go, you know, you're, how, how, you're just going to leave people to die on the streets. That's that's what you guys want. You know? People who who uh, promote free market in healthcare. those people, they're they're just lunatics and monsters. Um, so it took a while. It's not something that happened overnight, uh, but uh, it really did uh, help a lot by being introduced to it. it, it and through Ron Paul, I, I heard about the Mises Institute and uh I got more, more and more interested, and learned some, uh, some more Austrian economics. And uh, once you get down that path, there's, uh, there's really nothing going back. Uh, you, it, it's, it just takes over your way of thinking, and uh, you become uh, immersed in this new way of looking at the world. So, I mean, on that, that's really the, it, it, it very, very much. Uh, progression towards where I'm at today. Today, I would probably, you know, yes, I would consider myself to be a um, private property anarchist. Um, but, you know, I, I know that's, you know, strategy matters and you have to be, uh, you know, have, somewhat pragmatic too. But, you know, you always don't, you never, never give in to, to uh, give up on your principles. So that's, that's pretty much where I'm, where I'm at today. Yeah. 
So Olaf, your story is is very similar to ours. I mean, not with the international moves on our part, but with the left leaning uh, growing up and the sort of not seeing um, anything on the menu that is anti-state. Because when the state is providing you media and education, they're basically running the restaurant, albeit poorly, but they're not going to have anything that uh, is off menu, you know, yeah. not sticking to the script or anything. So you really have to find this kind of on your own. And that's one of the key reasons why I think that the Ron Paul uh, election campaign was useful, even though it was using political means, which in a principled sense, I'm against. But right. He did use it as an educational platform, and there was a wave of people that got sort of that exposure to something that probably clicked for them. Because Robert and I talked about this on our Action Point episode, but essentially, I think that a lot of people know something's not right. Mm -hmm. But a lot of it is due to the Orwellian doublespeak. Like, they see the state committing violence, but they're calling it something else. And so there's this disconnect. And so people get really confused by that. But then when you finally get something, here's kind of what things really are. You kind of take that red pill or you get those they live glasses. Yeah. And you can kind of see the zombies or or is that what they are in uh they live? Are they zombies or like aliens or something? Anyway. Yeah, alien thing. Anyway, not to get into an yet another movie. Uh, which because <laughs> we're here to talk about Outlaw King. And how we start off the show generally is with the Google descriptions. So why don't we get into that? Uh here we go. Outlaw King came out 2018, two hours and seventeen minutes. This is a Netflix produced uh film. And uh Kind of surprising because they have a $120 million budget, which is pretty pretty big budget for what you think of as like a almost akin to a TV network, um, especially since they're losing so much money right now. Um, I think Netflix is down 29% stock-wise uh, over the course of the year, and I don't think they've turned a profit ever. But anyway, here is the description. After being crowned King of Scotland, legendary warrior Robert the Bruce is forced into exile by the English and leads a band of outlaws to help him reclaim the throne. That's the whole thing. Uh, 63% Rotten Tomatoes, 7 point, or seven out of 10 on IMDb, and 60% Metacritic. However, 94% of the Google users like it. And I'm on board with the Google users on this one. I, I did enjoy this film. Uh, your thoughts, Robert, and then we'll go to Olaf. Well, not a whole lot to react to there. I mean, that's an accurate description of kind of what happens. It's a little more nuanced than that. And I don't think that Robert the Bruce is the, you know, pure hero at all. I think he does some really shady stuff. And of course, on top of that, he's a king or a self-styled king. And, you know, he demands taxes from his, the lands that it's not clear whether he owns it and rents them out or if people own it and he's just demanding tribute taxes from this place that he claims dominion over. Now on the war front, he, he, he's, uh, he claims that, you know, the people are demanding freedom. And he, he, he hangs out with, well, let's just say that he's nearby when William Wallace is killed or, you know, he sees a body piece part of him and the crowd like gets angry and he gets the sense that the people would be ripe for an uprising, even though it had just happened. There was a uprising previous to that, the, the battle that's detailed in Braveheart and they lost. But he claims that, you know, now it's time for the people to revolt and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, if I'm on board with uh, a battle for freedom so long as all the people joining in the battle are voluntary and you don't hurt any innocent people. And luckily he's from a time when there's not a whole lot of collateral damage chance. It's not like you're lobbing nukes or firebombing cities. They're meeting up at a field and they're hacking each other to pieces. So it's not (laughs) like a random grenade's gonna go off and blow off some kid's head. So in that sense, you know, it's, it's a more moral thing that he does. 
it's not clear though that um, everybody's there voluntarily. Like all the soldiers, it's like they all pledged like their allegiance to this local lordling guy, and then they pledge their allegiance to him. And so they have a certain number of men that they can call upon to fight in the war. It's not clear exactly how coerced these people are. So I don't know. Uh, clear, I'm not clear on the whole morality of it all, but at least it's more moral of a war than like a modern war that's waged between two states. So I can get behind it a little bit more than that. All right. That's interesting. Interesting. Uh, what's your take so far on the Google description and just your general impression and then any response to Robert's comments? Olaf. Well, I, um, for me, it's very difficult to not have sympathy for Robert Bruce in this movie. I think he is, you know, given the narrative that, that they point up here, that they paint up between, you know, King Edward and, and, uh, and his counterpart, I think that, uh, there's no question that Robert de Bruce is on like the right side of this battle of this conflict, and I do think there are some interesting things that distinguishes him and makes him more uh, friendly towards freedom in my in my eyes. And <clears throat> one of them is that when he was you know incoronated as the king, you know illegally so according to the English, but in any case he was. Um, anointed you know appointed a king but by, by the people that supposedly ruled over he said you know i'm 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 the king of the scots i'm not the king of the land and in my that that to me can only mean one thing that you know the land isn't my to expropriate it's it's the people that for for their private use i am the king of the people meaning i am a judge and that is you know the least evil that uh, that a state can do if it just were you know acting as um as the judge, which it never does, it always tends to expand its uh, itself. But um, that I think was just that statement that he made there made him uh, made me view him more favorable. His character, and uh, you know, of course, I mean, they have the right to to uh, fight for their for their own freedom, for their own uh, secessionist movement, and and uh, their own uh, association that they want to create. And if they want to separate from the uh, the emperor, which is somehow how I view, how I view the English, uh, the King Edward, then uh, it's very hard for me not to sympathize with uh, Robert de Bruce to uh, to a certain degree, and you know the side that he's on, obviously. Um, and there there are other things to to say about this, but that is sort of my my uh, initial reaction in regards to uh, you know the conscription. Of, of soldiers, and it's not clear they they, they don't really talk about this much. Um, but it you, know, you remember there's a moment in the movie when they're trying to take that young man and drag him off away, and the uh, um, the goddaughter of King Edward interferes and says, "No, you know you don't do that with children. You know he wants men fighting, not children." That is a sign. That was at least a sign to me that he the, there is some kind of conscription involved. In uh, in the army into the English army, while the Scottish people, on the other hand, you know, most of them, I had the feeling that they were they were fighting for something they believed in. They were voluntarily standing up to beat back the English, and that 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 was also something that I, um, you know, think was different between the two sides. That there was much more, you know, the belief in in self ownership and and the self determination in in the Scottish side and the right their right to write their own destiny. 
as opposed to the English side where I feel like, you know, people were forced into it. You know, they don't explain this, but uh, that's the feeling I get, at least from from um, watching the interactions for, of, of these different characters. Yeah, and I, I agree. Yeah, I appreciate that the movie gave us that scene. I thought it was interesting that they show it to us and recognize the evil that it is. Mm hmm. And that all the other people reacted to it with horror. Like, are you kidding me? You're dragging out these people to go fight in this King Edward guy. Mm -hmm. But but then, it, you know, and I understand they don't want to totally muddy the waters with our hero being a hero. But I, I, I tend to believe that there was definitely some kind of, whether they thought it was an obligation or there was just straight out coercion mm -hmm. for some of these lords to join him. I mean, I understand that they're being oppressed by a foreign power and, you know, it, you can get volunteers quite easily in this situation. I mean, I think, you know, if, if the United States hadn't invaded Afghanistan, the Taliban wouldn't have had nearly as many recruits as they, you know, they've grown only grown in size since the United States, because there's like an enemy to fight and there's reasons yeah. to fight that enemy. Now, if yeah. we just stayed over here, it's like, well, why am I joining up? I, I got crops to farm. Yeah. So I could see, there being more volunteers on Robert the Bruce's side. And I appreciate that they gave us that scene, but I, and I understand it's, you know, it's, it's an action movie. It's not like a historical documentary. They're not going to go into the details of everything, but I still, it annoys me that the hero is a King yeah, and that he's royalty and he's yeah. above everybody else and better than everybody else. And you got to bow and scrape to the guy. And, you know, it's just this idea that princes and princes and royalty are better than regular people. It just, it just, I just hate that. I hate that. I hate, I hate, I hate when Disney does it. Yeah. I hate it when historians do it. Mm -hmm. I just hate it when everybody does it, that modern day people, when they watch some prince marry some princess today and a billion people watch it, who cares? Who cares? These people are just scum. Anyway. <laughs> globalist scum <laughs> yeah. well I, I have a few comments to make if you guys don't mind uh, and, and both of you had really good uh, moments there in your discussion uh, one comment I would like to make is regarding him claiming to be of the people and not the land that sounded like political rhetoric to me similar to how Bernie Sanders says he's of the people now I would say that Robert the Bruce is probably a fair amount better than a Bernie Sanders type because he wasn't advocating for like, you know, one kind of deodorant and uh, more outwardly <laughs> socialist things. And and we also have to remember the context of, you know, this is like the 1300s. I mean, the Magna Carta had just been signed 100 years prior. This is going into what is considered the Dark Ages. Um, you know, the history of humanity has been uh, uh, sort of a, a long struggle towards being able to scrape above subsistence and then be able to worry about things like gaining more freedoms and having rights that are recognized by by people, you know, within a community. So I think for the context, uh, Robert the Bruce is clearly presented as as the hero in this. And um, one of the um, early moments is where the Scots had been fighting and then surrender to King Edward. The only one left remaining fighting is William Wallace after the Battle of Falkirk, and the demands or sort of the treaty that's that's brought forth is that these men will no longer, the Scottish will no longer have to fight overseas land or overseas battles for King Edward. Mm -hmm. So the conscription would be more limited. But then, of course, he, as all, almost all politicians do, uh, he goes back against that um, shortly thereafter. So kind of an interesting um, open to this, because I think that like like Robert, you were saying, you know, 
there was resistance that was already happening. They were crushed a bit. And then when William Wallace finally was was killed, it reinvigorated that spirit of defiance. And I think that's one of the things that, at least per the film, um, really brought Robert the Bruce off of the fence and into actually rising up uh, against against England. Um, and even King Edward says to him, per the script, uh, you had the courage to stand up to me. Now you need to have the wisdom to sit down. And he says this right after they destroy a castle that is already surrendered, but Edward refuses to accept the surrender. And the reason is given is that they have this like catapult thing that they light on fire. Yeah. And they're like, well, we built this thing. We spent all these resources on it. If we don't use it, then it's totally wasted. So we got to use it. And that just reminded me of how, um, you know, the military industrial complex in present day <laughs> terms work, right? Like, they're, they're always building weapon systems based on the last war that they can't really use very effectively in the next war. And they just sit around. Uh, so they sort of, you know, have to like come up with reasons to use them. Yeah. Well, that was one of Truman's excuses for why he dropped the bomb in World War II. He's like, well, we spent all this money. We're, we're just going to not use it. Yeah. Right. Which is like, it's not even like just evil. It's It's like hubris evil. It's like even worse, you know? It's like, well, it's not because I'm totally evil, but it's because I'm not cheap. Uh, and you can set uh, comfort from your own home while doing it, right? I mean, you don't have, they don't have to ever be the ones doing it. The ones who are doing the killing, I mean, you know, they, many of them uh, are pretty psychologically damaged after that. So it's, uh, that's even more evil. You're, they're, 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 they're chicken hawks. You know, they are, you know, all for going and, and, and dropping these bombs, but, you know, they're never the ones doing it and their families are never the ones doing it either. Um, so it's that, it's that side of it that makes it extra like evil that you can just sit from the comfort of your com home or your computer and just watch these events unfold. It just costs. Right. Uh, Clicking such, your mouse and millions yeah. of people die. And As it, opposed to back then when it was more like you had to get out in the field, you had to get dirty, you had to get bloody, you're cutting yeah. people's heads off with your sword in your mm -hmm. face. Yeah. It's a little bit different. Yeah. Right. And I will say that the Kings and the Lords actually being within the battles themselves is far better than than just having you know a gang of 535 and a commander in chief just sending you know drones and and people playing video games blowing up weddings. Yeah, yeah. at least you have some skin in the game mm -hmm. at least. I mean, yeah, I I just you couldn't help notice, but in the movie itself, the way they portray King Robert is he is sort of supposed to be one of the people. I mean, he's down there digging the ditches, you know, at the end where they make the trap. And he is always there marching and he's always out there fighting. He is getting dirty and he's getting bloody and he goes through a lot of suffering, which makes him more, um, you know, a human being in a sense of an ordinary human being. And I feel that the viewers will uh, inevitably have a more favorable view of this person because you know, someone watching this movie and have no perspective or anything, just seeing that, I mean, that is the, the reaction will be, oh, he's clearly one of them. He's down there and, you know, working with his hands. He's not just somebody sitting on his throne, you know, shouting out commands through through a bullhorn. And uh, then I just, you know, it, it, as, a, as a whole, obviously, the smaller, smaller political units are better than bigger political units. I wouldn't want to see anybody being the king. But it's impossible to not see, you know, the uh, uh, the difference and and be more favorable towards the the, the Scottish in in this movie and and you know so just from it, putting it in perspective, like I'm not endorsing any anybody being the king anywhere, uh, but it is uh, you know it, the 
from the point of view of radical secession and decentralization, this is this is the good side here, even though it's or this is the better of of, of the two sides. Right, you're kind of given two terrible options, but one is clearly more terrible. Yeah, and uh, the uh, you know the English they're they're bound to lose. If you see uh, on um, look on history how empires, I mean, this is not you know stretching yourself all over the world, but it's still stretching yourself out of the bounds of your native sort of land. And you see that at the end of the movie when they point this out. He says they don't know the land. This is our land. We know it, and we're going to take advantage of it. So even if they're fifty times more people than we are, we'll beat them because we'll make sure that they and they fall into the trap. They don't know the land. The Scottish are bound. They have a bond with their land. They know what they're doing there. They know where where the um, where the ground sinks in and and, and where to you know all, all of that. The battle at the end sort of really gives that uh, impression that you know an empire that stretches them out. To stretch itself out uh, all over the world will come down, and, and and that's what it did because they the natives of that land they have a bond to it that you cannot uh, underestimate. And you know, you look at Vietnam, uh, the quagmire they got stuck in there. I mean, that wasn't what a disaster. They they didn't know what they were dealing with there, either. Yeah, I think it's interesting to note and to look as history unfolds when. Um say the English rule over the Scottish, mm-hmm. they don't just wipe out the entire political hierarchy structure. They go in and they take it over. Mm-hmm. They want to leave that infrastructure in place so that all the taxes and everything can comes in and they can gain that. So I think it's really interesting to note that had Scottish Scotland lacked a hierarchy at all, like a, a political hierarchy of any kind, it was just people living on their own land and nobody paid fealty to anybody, whether this war would have even been necessary. It seems like they would have been completely ungovernable. Yeah. Like the resources required for England to come in and set up everything and, yeah. you know, convince people that they were now ruled by somebody would have been way more hassle than it was worth. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then to just come <laughs> in, you know, have a puppet now, and then extract resources from this puppet when mm-hmm. people were used to paying fealty to this puppet it was way easier and way more economically available. Yeah, no, I, I think that's correct. I think that's correct. I mean, if you have no, if you're just having a bunch of private people living on their own land and their property, and there, there's really nothing to take over, and you're going to then go in and convince all these people that now I rule over you and you ought to pay me, that is, <laughs> yeah, that, that becomes not so easy, not an easy task. So no, that's uh, that's that's correct. Yeah, and I think this played right into the guerrilla tactics that Robert the Bruce implemented, and and one of the reasons why they were so effective because he would go in and take castle by castle yes. with a small force, and just destroy the castle and not give the English any reason to want to stay there and keep it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. It reminds me of um, my own history, uh, Swedish history, when many times there were battles with with the Russians, but the Russia was impossible to invade because it was so big, and so the Swedish army would march in, and the Russians would just burn down that next destination, and there was nowhere to go, so they just froze to death, you know, out there, and they could never be be invaded, and this is, you know, same. Kind of not the same thing, but it's the same concept. And you, they stretch themselves selves out like this, and they become vulnerable. So they just target these um, targets individually and take them over and burn them down. And it, it's 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 pretty it's it's a smart move. It's very interesting that the 
to, to see that. Right. This is like an early iteration of the scorched earth policy, right? Where you, you just don't leave them anything worth uh, trying to capture. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Now, one other point I wanted to make regarding the um, the unsettled truce with King Edward in Scotland right before the uprising with Robert the Bruce was that not only did he go back on the agreement to not do conscription, but they also levied increased taxes as war reparations. And that sounded very similar to the Versailles Treaty to me. Yeah. All right. Well, my next point is, let's see. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that would bring something up. But... Um, Elizabeth, taxation is theft. Taxation is theft. <laughs> uh, so Elizabeth, the the new wife of Robert the Bruce, and this is like an arranged marriage that's supposed to solidify the political unity between the two countries, right? Um, she becomes sympathetic to Robert's cause and and uh, really thinks that what he's doing is is correct and and noble and, and worth doing, and so she has a line that was reminiscent of an H.L. H. L. Mencken quote where, and I'm going to paraphrase here, but he, he says there's a, there comes a time when it's time to raise the black flag and start slitting throats. And it seemed to me like she got to that point where she was like, okay, the English are doing some really awful shit here. And clearly the Scottish people are on the receiving end of this and it's not right. And they should be able to resist this by whatever means necessary. And this is where that weasel, uh, the, the, Edward the Younger, who was a petulant child, uh, who reminded me of Commodus from Gladiator, by the way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, that's a good analogy. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, he was a he was a real piece of shit, but mm-hmm. um, he wanted to raise the dragon banner, which apparently was symbolic of we're not going to use the normal code of conduct in engaging in this war. We are going to offer no quarter, no mercy. We are going to kill men, women and children. We're going to destroy everything. Uh and it's it's kind of weird that they're going to wear that banner or raise that flag and and basically make people aware that there is no uh, negotiation here, there is no resistance, there is only violence. Yeah, yeah, and I I think you know the um, the scene where they agree to fight one on one, which seems logical, right? This is supposed to be a conflict between warlords, not a conflict between um, uh, civilians. And then they stabbed him in the back and uh, burned down the uh, the village there, which is, I mean, that that was just it, it, he he uh, he is clearly acting like um, you know he has he has no ethical code of conduct whatsoever, and uh, it's completely immoral, just totally distorted in in his uh, in his way of acting, and it's just uh, it's it's really awful, and then that is. That, that was probably the the most difficult thing to to watch when he's just you know betraying his own word basically um, and it would now that wasn't you know the uh, the prince but and 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 it's not clear whether or not the prince had influence in making that command but it, it, it seems like like he did because I don't I'm not sure they got along very much the uh, the general there and 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 the prince you know who, who i'm talking about the uh the yeah i think his name was valence maybe? yeah yeah they, they, he he seems to think also that the prince is a little wimp and so he wants to run the show himself and not take you know orders from some from some little kid um but he comes off as, as you know pretty evil himself but that that moment when you know well won't fight today because it's Sunday, uh, but tomorrow, and then they go and stab them in the back and, and attack them from from behind in the middle of the night. Yeah, that was a chicken shit move for yep. sure. Yep. And I, I still think that um, 
at least presented in the film, that Valance had the advantage, uh, even in a one-on-one combat. But he also knew that he had a greater advantage in that he had a larger force already present. He had reinforcements on the way. Mm-hmm. And now he was buying time to be able to, to basically do a sneak attack yeah. on their encampment and attack women and children. Yeah, no, it was uh, it was pretty awful. And, and, and uh, you know, getting back to Robert's wife, uh, who, you know, the, the, uh, she, she has some, uh, she, you know, she shows loyalty, right? I mean, she's not looking out for her, for herself anymore. She, uh, she's, belie- she's starting to believe in this, in this cause when, when you, when they <laughs> try to force her to sign the, uh, annulment of, uh, of the marriage. And then they said, well, soon he will be dead anyway. Well, why do I have to sign anything if he's going to be dead anyway? You know, right, that's yeah, a really it's, good, it's, <laughs> good it's all, question. It's all optics at that yep. point, right? Yep, and it's uh, you know, it's uh, that that's where she gets this you know feeling that okay, well, he's obviously you know causing trouble for the king here and causing trouble for the entire army, and he's not going anywhere. So I, I'm not going to sign this, and then I'm going to get in a lot of trouble myself for it. But I, I, I think I, I liked her character. I, I thought she was. Uh, she tries, you know. She's on the she's on the right side, and I, I the way the way they made her character, I feel yeah, they, they, they did a good job. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Now, I do have a point when they um when they finally do capture and kill William Wallace that they mention that Wallace was not a man but a destructive and dangerous idea. And I recall many quotes. Um, some are Miss Mises, some are Rothbard, some are Ron Paul. But basically, uh-huh. there's no way to defeat an idea whose time has come. Yeah. And the, the Mises quote I have here is that, uh, quote, violent resistance against the power of the state is the last resort of the minority in its effort to break loose from the oppression of the of the majority. The, mon- the minority that desires to see its ideas triumph must strive by intellectual means to become the majority. And I know that Robert the Bruce isn't, you know, going the intellectual route with this. He's going guerrilla tactics, mm-hmm. but he did have sort of the higher moral ground. Yeah, yeah, he did, and I think that's what made it easier for him to to get people behind him too, because he could just uh, be that person. He he, you know, there's pretty clear that you have this one guy who is going to violently expropriate you a lot more than I will do. And so he uses this phrase too in, in, in Mary. He says, no more ca- no more taxes for King Edward. You know, well, well, I might tax you too, but no more taxes for this dude at least, Wh- to whom you have no relation and you will never see and who lives far away from your, from your uh, backyard. Uh, and I think that sort of, uh, it, it plays a little bit on this uh, localist idea that people are, uh, more okay to some extent to uh, you know be expropriated as long as they can sort of have more control and see what's happening uh, or have at least the uh, il- delusion that they have some control and see what's happening where their funds are funneled into into what types of projects they feel like they have more of a of a power to that so he 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 did uh, you know have have an easier time because of of the of this um, he had the moral high ground. For sure, and then uh, you you can you can clearly see that. Right, well, you also sound like Walter Block for a moment with the baddie A versus baddie B. <laughs> but I always consider them, you know, campaign promises, and and those are equivalent to lies. But yeah, yeah. Uh, go ahead, Robert. Well, he also had the advantage of not having a rival, having murdered the guy in oh, yeah. a church when he had gone there to treat with him in good faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's talk about that because 
how it's presented in the film, I almost wonder if it was a little self-defensey because he does present him an option. And then Common, I think that's his name. He's like, nah, I'm going to turn you in and, and you're going to you're going to get murdered. <laughs> so basically his weapon is, you know, King Edward. Yeah. So, so it seemed like a bit of a self-defense move at that point to me. Maybe, maybe he felt, you know, it's, I mean, obviously he feels threatened at, at some level, maybe even scared that he feels like he has to do it. But also he doesn't, even if that's not it, then he doesn't want to let this opportunity go because he feels like his rival has a lot of, of uh, influence over the people that uh, surrounds him. And he wants that, he, he knows that in order to come out victorious here, he's going to need more help than what he has from uh, his own uh, his own group. Uh, so he uh, he needs that uh, backing, that alliance, and uh, he's not getting that there um, right. in, in any collaboration. And but yes, I mean he could easily make the argument that he's he's scared and threatened and uh, just doesn't see any other way out of it than than uh, uh, stabbing him to death. Right, Robert. You're, you, do you condemn him for this, or do you think that uh, perhaps there's a bit of a self-defense element to it? It smelled to me when I watched it, I completely was like, oh, so he doesn't want to be a part of his rebellion. Well, I need him to not oppose me. And I might even be able to grab some of the guys that were supporting him once I murder this guy. It seemed like a complete, like, I need to not be opposed in order to have a chance to win against Edward. So I'm just going to murder this guy and move forward. It seemed to me like he was just a guy who didn't mind getting his hands dirty to achieve his political goals. And that sounds to me like, well, any politician ever. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, um, I, 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 he does have some positive traits. I will agree with Olaf on that and yourself, Daniel. I, he's definitely the least kingly person that, you know, we see in modern cinema and that kind of thing. But right. I wouldn't say that he was a, a, a pure, a morally pure character by any means. No, definitely not. And even in his exchange with Douglas, which was like a bit of a disclosure to each other when they meet on the road, he says, I'm trying to be a good man. And Douglas says, well, that's good enough for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I kind of like that. But, you know, I also, uh, it, it reminded me of the Larkin Rose video of if you were king. So yeah. even if you were benevolent, you would still not be able to do the moral thing because as king, you would need to levy taxes to pay for your kingdom and pay, you know, and, and have guards and all of these things. It's, it's a good video and I'll post it on the show notes page, which we had at uh, lastnarrative.com slash 50, by the way. Right. And also as king, you can't just give suggestions to things. You would have to actually enforce your decrees and therefore, you know, you're in the attacking and killing people in order to be a king. So yeah, that's a great video. Everybody should check it out. Right. So I will post that. Now I did mention the uh, raising the dragon banner earlier, and I wonder if this might be a good discussion point for a few minutes. Uh, they say they're dealing with outlaws. They have no rights. So what does that mean? I mean, in the context of, of the time, what did rights mean? And what did saying they didn't have rights mean? Are they saying that they're not human? Are they are they dehumanizing them? Are they treating them as NPCs or Russian bots? What, what's going on here? I uh, think that that meant that they had no rights under British law, like under English law that applied to all subjects of English law. That's what I interpreted it as. Like, so they are voluntarily foregoing any kind of protection that the crown would have otherwise offered or, you know, 
not necessarily protection, but also, you know, due process or that sort of thing. It's like these people have voluntarily extricated themselves from the kingdom. Therefore, they are not going to be subject to any kind of kingdom's benefits. So we can just go ahead and slaw them. They are enemy combatants, that sort of thing, blah, blah, blah. That's how I took it. Yeah. I mean, I I, I agree that that's sort of how I envision uh, the viewing the Scots. And, uh, but it's... It's, you know, they have to say things like this in order to for them to maintain the, uh, the geographical territory uh, over which they have the monopoly on violence. Uh, because if they say, you know, they, these people have the right, they could easily have said, you know, okay, you don't have any rights under the English law, but uh, hey, we recognize your own independence, please go. You know, that they could have said that too, and make your own society, but they're not allowing them to go. So... It's it's this uh, weird relationship where you you don't have uh, any rights under the um, under the English crown, uh, but at the same time you're forced to stay under the English crown, or else we'll murder you. So it could easily be okay. You don't have any rights under the English crown. You can say that, but uh, you have the right to separate yourself and create your own uh, voluntary political association. But apparently they didn't. They you know didn't allow that either. So it's this. Uh, when and it, it's a lose-lose situation so them and, and they had this is say you can see this in political rhetoric all the time i mean imagine a state wanting to secede from the us there's never a problem adding states you know never a problem adding more territory over which you have a monopoly over coercive taxation uh but uh you know letting a piece go uh, that, that, that can't happen Right, so, it's almost yeah. like breaking the mental control. It's like, wait a yeah. minute, you can just do that? Yeah. You can just leave if you want to? We can't allow you to do that. I mean, it's like when Lincoln fought the Civil War because he was like, no, you ain't leaving. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it's so the the thing that they do there, which is just so uh, really evil, is that they maintain that rhetoric that you don't have any rights under the crown, but you also don't have any right to leave the crown. So the only right you have is to stay and, and get and get hacked up into pieces. That's that's the only way out of this for you, basically, which is, yeah, which I mean, uh, if that's if that's the um, the position of the um, the group of people who are currently in power or at least you know have appointed themselves to be in power then uh, yeah i mean i i it makes it even uh, uh you know more more difficult to not have the uh, sympathy for for the, the scottish rebellion because well are they in rebellion really did they leave or were they rebelling did they declare them in their own independence or were they rebelling? These are two different things. And that also can relate to the Civil War. I mean, had the South seceded or were they in rebellion? Uh, to me, they had already seceded. They weren't rebelling. They had already left. So, uh, uh, but it seems like, yeah, you didn't have the right to do that. But how, how, how then? I don't have, you know, you don't have the rights uh, of, of due process under the crown, but neither you have the right to leave the crown. So... <laughs> you can't win that game if those are the rules, you know? Yeah, apparently they had the right in 1776, but not in 1863 or whenever it was, 1860, right. 1861. Exactly. Uh, yeah, you yeah. have to really reframe the argument because you can't point that out. Because then otherwise, yeah, like Jefferson Davis would have been like, well, wait a minute. Was was George Washington wrong too? Uh-huh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's. Uh, I think this comes comes down to, you know, the uh, the favor of smaller 
you know, the, the, the favor of smaller political units as opposed to build, big, bigger poli political units. Smaller political units always tends to be less oppressive than bigger ones. I'm not saying that they are moral. I'm saying that they are better than the bigger ones. And so is a king to a democratic republic. A king is better than a democratic republic. And this is the argument that Hoppe outlines in, in, in his work, which is pretty, uh, I think, uh, very compelling and very, very good. Uh, and he makes a very, very strong case for it. So, and, and then from there, it's that the smaller kingdom is better than a bigger kingdom because it's always easier uh, to... Um, uh, for it, it's it, it's less likely to in, indulge in in, uh, in these types of conflicts because it's very expensive to do so. And I you're think that's, discussing yeah. uh, Hans Hermann Hoppe's democracy. The, uh, the yes, I can, you're you're um, he's digitizing big time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know but what's yes. going on with your stuff, Daniel, but it's all jacked. I I am talking uh, about that book where Hoppe goes on and he, you know, makes this comparative um, comparison between uh, a monarchy and a democracy and ultimately a natural order, which would be a state of uh, anarchy, so to speak, you know, like the private property uh, anarchy. And uh, it's so convincing the way he puts it, the way a, a, a king relates to, to his people as opposed to how a you know, a democratic Republican government with a um, group of temporary caretakers, how they treat their people and how they engage being, you know, not the owner of this estate, which is the government. Right. That a king is. And that, uh, that, that makes a huge difference. It's the private ownership of that estate that, um, and everything is deduced from that, the types of behavior that uh, a king might uh, engage in versus a, you know, the, the U.S. president or Congress or, you know, the, these, these guys who are sitting there are only temporary takers who tend to be more and more and more ex uh, um, engaged in more extortion and expropriation and are not concerned with the future value of such an estate the way a king would be concerned of this future value. Of, right, because uh, a long-term ruler would have an entire lifetime to worry exactly. about. Yes. And not only that, but his lineage. He has children, yes. his grandchildren. He's got to see that to them. Mm -hmm. Whereas a politician who's only in there for four years gets in, gets out, gets what he can. Mm -hmm. Correct. And uh, the way people look at the prince and the king versus the way people look at sort of a democratically government is very different too i mean they make no mistake when that king and that prince make a move or something they will look at that move with the most utter suspicion they are not deceiving themselves and believing that they are free they know that that person has power over them so they will look at that person with suspicion all the time Right. Uh, it's not like they can live on this idea that government is of the people, yeah, like exactly. in a democracy. Right. In a in a dictator in a dictatorship or a monarchy, no, we know it's you. We know it's yeah. you, that king guy. You're the one that made that decision, yeah. not us. Yeah. And if you keep going in this direction, I will will create an uproar and we'll overthrow you and, and that's gonna be it. So he's not gonna engage in these like violent acts of of, uh, of expropriation the way uh, you know, when you have free entry into government and everybody can take part of it, and then you have different interest groups competing of, um, for resources in it. That is, I mean, it, it, you kind of have to read it for yourself, but it, it's like, it is a very, very convincing book for, for that case, you know, of, of, uh, of a, of a uh, 
monarchy, a, a true monarchy versus not, not just what you see now of a reigning monarchy, let's say Sweden. I mean, these people, the king has no power, doesn't do anything. It's just sitting there. Um, but you know, a true monarchy when the king is actually the ruler and how that would play out in the real world today. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it, it makes a very good, uh, he makes a very good case. And I, I encourage anybody who hasn't read the book. I can't believe there's anybody who wouldn't have read the book, but if there is anybody in the audience that hasn't, then I, 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 I would, uh, it's probably no book that I would recommend more than, 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 uh, than that. Yeah, yeah well, histories well, of monarchies throughout history is really quite interesting. And usually, especially the more successful ones, I want to think of mostly the Japanese and the Egyptians and probably some others. But you always see monarchies being tightly integrated with the church or mm -hmm. some sort of religion. So yeah. that they usually claim that they are touched by God or descended from God. They have some sort of divine, you know, lineage, and that's why they have the right to rule you. They have to come up with this kind of BS line in order to subject, you know, all these people to their rule. Like, yeah. otherwise, why do you have the right to rule me and tell me what to do? Oh, well, I'm the son of God. Oh, oh, okay. Well, I'm not. So, okay, I guess I'll do it today. <laughs> the divine monarchies of Europe. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's true. And I guess that's partially... You know the uh, the strong uh, religious faith that's um, you know not it, not present in the same way today as it was before among the people also kept that system in some sort of sort of balance because it was always this divine respect for the king right I mean it was um, chosen by by uh, godly means even though you know it <laughs> often passed down through the family and the lineage that was decided who who would be the king but still yeah right yeah this you were going to say something. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say that, um, well, a, a whole lot of things before I got kicked off and then got back on. And by the way, we've never had this level. Well, I don't want to say never. We've had technical difficulties, but we've never had you being dropping all the time. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting like power surges where everything's like shutting down and then reconnecting after a few moments. So it's it's quite bizarre. But um, to some of the points that you guys have been making, uh, Democracy of the God That Failed is an excellent book. And I will post a link to it, not only to the Amazon page where you can uh, buy it and we will earn a small commission. Uh, also, a free version that's available at Mises.org. So that'll be on the show notes page. But uh, as Olaf was saying, I'm sure that it's not advocating for you know coercion and violence. It's basically comparing two systems, one that is revered and one that is often uh, derided, and comparing them on various economic incentive and, and other elements and basically stating that one tends to be worse than the other. And that's basically what the analysis is. And, and it is it is quite good. Uh, the other thing that you guys were talking about was the uh, relationship with rulership or, or the government or the state and religion. And in many times they were uh, one in the same or symbiotic, you know, developing uh, in concert with each other, supporting each other, airing, airing legitim legitimacy upon the other. And we see that in an, as an example, when Robert the Bruce goes to the bishops and says, hey, I want to be crowned the king. Mm -hmm. They're like, well, we need legitimacy right now. So we're going to absolve you of the murder. And basically, in exchange, uh, you know, you give us legitimacy and we'll make you the king. And that reminds me of uh, there's a great lecture on the miracle of Europe by Ralph Rako. And I'll post wow. that in the show notes as well, where he basically says that in the middle uh, or the dark ages, middle ages, which really weren't so dark, that there was a bit of a separation between individual states and, and the rulerships there and the churches, which were more uh 
cross borders. And so in that sort of adversarial tension between the two, that these vacuums or little pockets of freedom would develop. And that's where uh, commerce and the merchant class began to emerge. It's where you see the beginnings of the industrial revolution, the market economy sort of being able to take root. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not that, you know, either one of those were, um, you know, the, the religious class or the uh, state class were necessarily like advocating for anything um, positive here. But it was because they were were in a in a combative relationship with each other that things slipped through. And that's where the pockets of freedom kind of came from. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 true. And that's where also you see uh, forms of private law emerging from these uh, merchant uh, places, the the um, merchant law. I mean, that, that didn't arise from somebody just writing uh, in, in a book or giving out a command that, that arose naturally and, and spontaneously, which is also some uh, very um, a good sort of real world example where <laughs> you have a you know, natural, natural law arise and, and conflict resolution can be uh, done peacefully and, and without this, uh, this entity that, uh, that tends to always claim to be uh, ruling over us. Right. And uh, one other thing I wanted to mention is that uh, Tom Woods, he has a product called Liberty Classroom. And if you bet, get the master level membership, he also includes the courses that he did for the Ron Paul homeschool curriculum. And his course on government actually gets into the or- origin of rights, mm-hmm. where they came from, how they developed, what they meant uh, in this kind of time period. And you get that included at the master level membership. And uh, right around Christmas or shortly thereafter, he will have his second lowest prices of the year. The, the best prices are Black Friday. Right after Christmas, you know, when grandma sends you uh, like $5 in a card, uh, you can use <laughs> some of that money and and buy it on our link. And, and we'll give you a free read it uh, 4.me membership as well and, and our eternal thanks. But uh, if you get that, then uh, it's it's super interesting and we'll give you a, a new perspective on governments and how rights came to be. So, that's my like 30 second advertisement in the middle of our show here. That, that was great. <laughs> I like it. Nicely done. <laughs> so uh, we do need to wind down in probably another 10 or 15 minutes and we'll get into our final summaries and reviews. But I know you both took notes. So is there anything that you want to cover before we get into the uh, the wind down phase on the final stretch here? I'm trying to think of just something. I have notes here, but it seems like I covered most of the stuff. It's just one thing that I think is, and I, I, I feel like I've pointed out again because I think it's very, very important. It's the way uh, these, this kingdom, or I, I really will call it an, an, an empire, even though it's not really an empire in the, in the narrative in the movie because it's, it's really spanning not a big geographical territory. But it's still significant that when they overextend themselves, they become vulnerable. And I find that to be a, a beautiful element of the plot because that is very true. It always have been with empires when they tend to overextend themselves to become vulnerable and they fail. And they become vulnerable on different, uh, in different ends, both economically, and they have to keep taxing more and expropriate more. But they also become vulnerable strategically and are very much target of these type of guerrilla attacks that uh, Robert Bruce engaged in. And they become vulnerable because they don't know what they're doing. They don't know the land, the foreign land that they are uh, you know, now wanting to uh, rule over and command over. And, and so they're bound to fail. And that is exactly what happens. So I thought it was uh, beautifully done when uh, 
at the at the end of the movie or not not the end but it is getting to an end and said that you know they have more people and everything but they don't know our land and i think that that is a very strong statement because it's the natives always have the uh, a bond to this to this land where they grow and they know everything about it they know the secrets they know the traps they know where you where you go to to do certain things and activities they know the areas that you should avoid because it's dangerous and so forth and they other outsiders they don't know this and uh you know it makes uh, the makes me make that that particular point that is reiterated in the in the movie i think is is nicely done that uh, the they, they they come down the empire comes down at the end you know they always do yeah just to piggyback on top of that um anytime you have like one culture controlling and dominating another culture mm-hmm. the 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 home culture is you know seeing as this would, this would be seen as like an invasion right like the, the the scottish very much felt that they had their own culture and the english were a different invading culture yeah. they were being controlled by this like foreign other mm-hmm. and that's the you know the the price of empire is blowback and terrorism and insurgency you are going to subjugate a foreign people they're not going to see you as of themselves they're going to rebel and they're going to reject that rule um, yep. because you know you're it they're not only they're not only stealing from you but they're also doing it in an english way in a foreign way in they're they're you know kind of forcing their own culture on you and you see this today all over the place people reject you know being forced to change in ways that are alien to them they reject it and they will fight back violently yeah i think that's uh... It's happening pretty much in a lot of European countries right now. You have uh, clashes between uh, groups, uh, right. ethnic and cultural groups, and they are uh, they're 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 becoming violent, and uh, it's it's manifesting itself, and it's 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 getting it's getting uh, it's getting nasty, and uh, and and that yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I would like to piggyback as well and say that a lot of the guerrilla tactics that were employed, and they even fall for the Trojan horse uh, situation here. Um, but in in the means of going around castle to castle and traveling in stealth, uh, striking without warning, and doing that scorched earth policy, this is, I think, in response to Valance going back on his word of challenging him one-on-one. And so it's giving them back like a dose of their own medicine. Yeah. And, and uh, one point that I thought was really interesting, and this will actually be a callback to some of the pre-show content that we've had with Olaf, is that once these guys are uh, Trojan horsed into one of the castles, the uh, people within the castle are like, arm yourselves quickly, quickly arm yourselves. Uh, and that just you know, reminded me of like, yeah, you, you want to be in a position to be able to have the capacity for self-defense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> it's, a, it's a tragedy. I mean, that's... Uh... You know that recently one of the presidents just passed, right? I think something that uh, they have been missing when they talk about this guy is uh, that uh, he was he signed the uh, the gun zone free act that would make all these spaces very vulnerable to these types of attacks. Oh, I don't think anybody mentioned that he he signed that thing into law. Uh, it was just horrible. I mean, look at the look at the, the consequences of such an act. Right, and we actually even see it in the movie where. Yeah. Um, is it Douglas who goes back to his home castle and he slaughters the English in the church because they left their weapons outside? Oh, that's right. That's right. Yes. Yes. That is, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. And <laughs> they just kill everybody in there. Reminds me of certain attacks and uh, not so far past, you know, in this 
churches that have occurred. Right. And I want to say one more thing. This is the first movie I've ever actually seen uh, where they literally throw down the gauntlet. And so it actually makes more sense like that saying now. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I don't think I've seen it either. <laughs> that's true. Yep. No, that's that's a good uh, good note. All right. So, uh, Robert, I, I do have a question for you. Oh, yes. So at the end, when they have defeated Valance and Edward II in battle, and Edward II is all alone, surrounded by the Scots, why? Well, two questions really rolled into one here. Because Edward II is fighting Robert the Bruce, but the Scots are celebrating. They're standing around celebrating while their king is potentially about to get killed. And then they just let him go. So I'm sure that isn't what happened in real life. But it just seems really bizarre to me that they would end the movie in that kind of fashion where you're like, that's the guy. Kill him. And, you know, you've sort of solved like most of your problem here. Well, but would you have like you, you let him live and he's a defeated opponent who knows you and knows you're, you know, he knows you can probably deal with him and knows you're not going to back down from a fight. Oh, if you kill him, then his next brother is going to have to avenge him. There's there's a fair amount of, I think, a little bit of a dealing going on there that for reasoning why they just let him go. Um, because, yeah, they did have him at his mercy. They could have easily killed him at any point. Would it have been better to kill him? Probably. I think they probably did the right thing. Now, one thing that's interesting about that battle is I appreciate that either the moviegoer, you know, the movie makers or Robert the Bruce, if this is true, proved Sun Tzu correct yet again for like the millionth time. Um, one of the lessons that he teaches in the art of war is to n always decide where the fight's going to take place. And Robert the Bruce definitely set it up. He knew he was outnumbered. He was outgunned. He didn't, you know, he had to come up with a, a way to beat all the heavy mounted cavalry that Edward would have. And so he chose the place. He had this mired muck and he knew that those horses weren't going to be able to just run his men down in this swamp. And so, yeah, it's it pretty, pretty good stuff. I appreciate that. It can really turn the tide of a fight depending on, you know, deciding and then deciding where the fight's going to take place. But also with the the harrying tactics of um, that they exemplified throughout the entire movie, that was also very strategically well done. If you're an outnumbered force, you're not just going to show up to a field and fight this overwhelming force and then just see who wins based on pure numbers. That would have been stupid. But in terms of strategy, I think they probably did the right thing. But who can say? Yeah, I think that's actually a, a really good answer because yeah, if they had killed him, then you're right. They would have potentially had uh, repercussions related to you know vengeance and, and other things. Whereas if you have a humiliated humiliated opponent who knows that you can handle him, like it's a bully, you smack him back in the nose, he's gonna stop fucking with you. Yeah, yeah, for the most part. It's it's you know like you said, it's more humiliating for the guy to to you know he's you know humiliated for life. So he's not going to go at you again. I mean, he, he didn't seem that clever, but hopefully he won't go at you again. All right. One more question for you, Robert, and then we can get into hmm. final summary and review time. Okay. Why are the subtitles so small in this movie? <laughs> <laughs> it's not my job to make the subtitles for Netflix. I don't know. Usually Netflix is pretty good. Did, were they really small on your screen? Well, not the, uh, you know, like you turn on the words to see the closed captioning, but I mean like the, where they say, you know, they give you the setting and the place. It was tiny little words watching it on an iPad. And maybe if we watched it on TV, but, you know, with the distance and all that, it seemed extremely small and also rather quick to be able to read all of the words on the screen before they would move them along. So that's just my two cents back to the producers. You spend $120 million on this thing. Give me some bigger words. That sounds like an old man complaint. <laughs>
and get off my lawn. Crazy, <laughs> yelling kids. That's right. That's right. All right. So we're at that point where uh, we do have final summaries and reviews. Um, so Robert, if you'd like to begin, uh, set an example for our anarcho Viking Olaf here, mm -hmm. and then he can take the mic and give his uh, number uh, one to 10, one decimal point deep. And then I will do the same at the end and then we'll wind it down. Certainly. So uh, old Captain Kirk, Chris Pine does a pretty decent job pretending to be a Scottish guy. Um, the movie itself uh, follows a fairly decent narrative. Um, it doesn't have too many lulls and dead spots. It sets up its protagonist and its antagonist fairly well. Um, it's, a, it's a decent story that you can get behind. Although for me, you always know it's just going to end badly. I mean, even if Robert DeBruce wins and he becomes the king, and yeah, it's preferable to a democracy, but it's still this political structure that violently dominates the people living in that geographic area. It's not like it's a super happy story. But from a you know a layman's perspective, watching just some average movie trying to get some entertainment value, you can pretty much get behind his struggle. I mean, everybody can recognize a, a struggle for freedom, even though it's you know as misguided as it would end up being. It's not like Robert DeBruce was like, "We got freedom." Okay, now nobody follow me or do anything I say and don't pay me any taxes because that would be immoral and don't elect anybody else. No one no one ever does that in these movies because no one ever does it in real life. The only one who probably would have done it would be like Ron Paul. But even that, I'm not, I'm not even sure once he was there. Um, I think maybe Larkin Rose would. I would. But, uh, you know, if you're a very principled person, but these people are never principled. They're, they're more pragmatic living in the world of, that they live in. And I don't even know... Um, how realistic it would have been back in the day without, you know, how, how these ideas of freedom would have been able to spread um, without the internet and that sort of thing. I, I don't know. I really don't know. But anyway, the movie itself is worth a watch. It's, it's on Netflix. So if you got that, it's, you know, just flip it on. It's a good like two hours or so, I want to say. And uh, for my rating, it's a positive one, but it's not, it didn't blow my doors off. I don't think it's up to the level of like a Braveheart, but it is strong. I'm going to give it a 7.1 for the RJ scale, and that's my final rating. Thank you. Recommended. All right, Olaf, take it away. Okay, well, I, I'm first going to say that I, I do recommend it, so I get that out of the way. Um, I think it's a good movie because there are good teaching elements in the movie. I think uh, one of the uh, uh, good things about the movie is that it's pro-decentralization. It's pro-secession uh, in a way, if you really think about it. Um, and a lot of people can relate. And then you know, it, it can start up conversation that way. It is also uh, shows the irrationality of um, of the empire as a, as a, as a ruling model that it's unsustainable and it will come apart, which I think is good. Um, I think it shows that uh, people are more concerned with what happens in their backyard than they are with what happens in a some place far away that they don't recognize. It shows that people are you know it, they care about the neighborhood they care about their own tribe their their community their um, their land and i think uh, it um you know people a lot of people can can have sympathy for 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 the fight that he's fighting against a more bigger oppressive power uh so yes it is uh, it is a good movie that will uh, um emphasize certain important libertarian elements uh, such as you know nullification and and the secession the, and self determination and I think uh, that's positive. Now I don't think anybody will come out and like make an anarcho capitalist movie, you know, for coming out of these uh, these outlets. So 
I, I, it's fair to have some perspective and I'll give it a positive. I will go even slightly higher and I will go to 7.5 actually uh, because I think what brings it a little bit down, I could give it higher, but I think what brings it a little bit down is that it's easy to anticipate what's going to happen and what's, how it's going to end. I think it's not that hard to foresee the series of events taking place once you have come in maybe 20, 30 minutes into the movie. All right. Well, thank you for that summary and review and score. Uh, I will give mine, and uh, I also will be positive on this thing. Where it was beautifully shot, I will agree with that, and I think that's where a lot of the money went. I also think a lot of the money went to uh, Chris Pine, and he did a very fine job in his uh, first role, not um, necessarily in space that I'm aware of. Well, he was Jack Ryan in one of them, right? But <laughs> he, he's a half-decent guy, and I think he pulled off the Scottish angle pretty well. Uh, the... Um, the 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 lessons to be drawn from this and the discussion that resulted i think was quite good and it it just wants me wants to have me reiterate the hans hermann hoppe angle of the monarchy versus democracy and just the comparison between the two so i can't recommend that book it, uh, enough democracy the god that failed uh this uh this movie was well done i'm very impressed that netflix was able to throw this much money at something like this even though they're losing money hand over fist uh the other thing that i would mention is that it seemed to be about twice as long as it was. Like when my wife and I were watching this, we were about an hour in and we're like, this isn't over yet. So it did cover a lot of historical material. It's, you know, based on true events, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, how, how much of a record can we truly have from 1300 years or from the year 1300 or 1306, whenever it took place? But um, it, it tried to pack a lot in. And so it was a little bit slow and plotting for me. So while positive, I'm going to go with a 6.5 on it. I do recommend watching it, and this is available on Netflix. So if you guys have that, uh, it's included uh, in the buffet-style smorgasbord that capitalism provides you in that service. Uh, so do check it out. Now, next week, as we get closer and closer to Christmas time, I think we're going to do a Christmas movie, and it will be Will Ferrell's Elf coming at you from The Last Nighters, which, by the way, is part of the Launchpad Media, where they're always launching new ideas in your direction. So check it out at thelaunchpadmedia.com. Uh, so, Robert, are you excited about Elf next week? Not really. I don't know. I don't remember that movie. I mean, what is it? He, his dad is the executive of a publishing company, and uh, Peter Dinklage is in it, and he's the, the Santa Claus is real. I don't know. It'll be fun, probably. But I don't remember any kind of like real economic stuff going on. Who knows? We'll see. Oh, we're, we're going to tear that one apart. It's going to be great. It's going to be so much fun. And there are actually a lot of lessons on it. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, so before we wind down, uh, Olaf, thank you so much for being our guest here. And uh, do you have any um, particular websites or anything you want to throw out to everyone um, where they can find your work or follow you in any in any way? No, but I do hope that I can uh, you know contribute some, some more stuff i i don't have my own website yet i uh, never you know i never really started one i've written some uh, some content for actual anarchy and uh, about hans hoppe and his work and uh, some other stuff so uh, i i would uh, i would direct people to that and uh yeah, I'm, I'm on facebook i'm not on twitter uh, it's just wasting half of my time i guess being on facebook uh so well you you can find me there and uh, but yeah no that's 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 it i would i uh, would point them to things that i've done for for um, the actual anarchy project all right that sounds great we will post that in the show notes 
down below on lastnighters.com slash 50. Thank you, audience, so much for sticking with us for this episode. It has been a lot of fun, and uh, we do appreciate your support. If you want to support us monetarily, not only with your listenership and reviews and subscribing to us on YouTube, giving us iTunes positive reviews, etc., you can support us at Patreon at lastnighters.com slash Patreon. And uh, we'll be back next week covering a Christmas film, Elf, with Will Ferrell. So thank you guys very much for coming on, and I'll say goodnight from last night. All right, we can continue for a few more minutes on the actual Anarchy podcast before we get into the last or ah, not. We just did the last night's portion of the show. I'm 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 backwards tonight. We're going to get into some mm. Kathleen Turner Overdrive in a moment. But we oh, had yeah. some pre-show that um, I thought there was some content there that was really good. And it was uh, sort of our, our guest Olaf talking about his migration, which ne- wasn't necessarily him voting with his feet for more freedom. But I, I think that might be an interesting discussion for a few minutes with the actual Anarchy audience who don't support us on Patreon to get a little bit of a flavor of that. Because, uh, Olaf, you told us that you started off in um, Sweden and then you've moved around a bit. And, yeah. and now you're finally in a place where there is actual freedom. Was additional freedom a motivating factor to you in making these decisions or were they purely like opportunity, economic, you know, occupational opportunities and things like that? Yeah, freedom, uh, freedom always motivated me. I mean, that's why I wanted to be independent in the first place. But I, I hadn't, you know, I was in, in not mature enough to map out where there was uh, enough freedom. And, and so it, that didn't really draw with certain cultural aspects that, uh, you know, brought me to, let's say, Italy because I was interested in in uh, the Renaissance history and uh, and the learning the language and all of that. Um, then, you know, I, it never occurred to me really at that time that you know going to the to the United States. Uh, but uh, when I did that, I had no real clue of sort of where you know the division between the states and where which ones were more free because I was not. Um, you know, and also I was pretty much on the left. You know, I was had very much. I had socialist sympathies, and uh, uh, some some libertarian instincts have always been there, but they were never on my radar screen. So it it was never an ideology that was fed to me at any time. Um, so that was sort of just by independent uh, reading and thinking that I came to my own conclusions after many, many, many years, um, defying everything that they had taught to me and. Uh, my upbringing in state-run schools in Sweden. Um, right. Now, in the pre-show, you mentioned that you you came to the U.S. Uh, about 10 years ago, and part of that, you were in Italy. And if I just look at my handy-dandy calendar in front of me here, that, that pins you moving to Italy in, in roughly 2000 and, and moving to the U.S. in roughly 2004. I... Now, that was yeah. the George Bush years, George W. Bush years. And from what I recall, mm-hmm. um, shortly after 9-11, there was a huge worldwide sympathy for the U.S. But then that got defiled very quickly soon after. And then the U.S. was reviled due to the leadership here. True. And so I'm just wondering what the perspective was, if you can recall, yeah. uh, being in Europe at the time, you know, both right after 9-11 and then after the Iraq War II in 2003 and subsequent uh, missteps mm-hmm. by the Bush government yeah. um, that, you know, the, they were we were told that the world was laughing at us and that it was embarrassing as an American to be traveling abroad, right? Like yeah. there were people talking about putting Canadian flags in their backpacks so that they wouldn't be confused as Americans. <laughs> I don't know if it was so bad, but, you know, I came, I came to the U.S. in 2008. 
and I was in Italy be between 2004 and 2008. So I came just before the election of Barack Obama, right? So I only then, a few years later, discovered that there was this whole Ron Paul phenomenon going on. And I had no idea about it because, you know, I was living in New York City in Harlem and everything was overshadowed by Barack Obama, you know, and his candidacy and, and eventually winning the presidency. There was, I never, I, I didn't even remember even hearing about the name Ron Paul until the next election. But no, I don't think that there was, uh, you know, yes, the, after this might have been in 2006, 2007, it started and um there was this, uh, you know, people started to ridiculing America for what they were doing uh, in uh, in um, in the Middle East. But <laughs> you know, the, there was a lot of support for America coming from uh, from the European countries uh, right after nine eleven. So it's not like they weren't backed anything. I remember Swedish media; many of them endorsed some of the actions of of, of going after. People in the Middle East after after the after the towers fell, so that uh, that didn't happen until much later. You know they weren't laughing. It, there was a lot of sympathy for for the U.S. after that that attack, uh, and it took many years for for I think because it was it was built up. You know the people started to get behind these these military efforts by the U.S. government and their army to go into to Iraq. It wasn't, you know, everybody was against it. There was, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of people were for it. Uh, a lot of media outlets were for it in 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 Europe, um, and there were also some maybe that were against it. But it wasn't just black and white. It was it was, it was pretty mixed, I think. And uh, yeah, it wasn't until later, like two thousand seven, two thousand eight, when it it became sort of fashionable to laugh at. Uh, you know, Americans and and but I, I never they seem like perfectly fine people to me. I just never uh, found any any faults in them that I <laughs> couldn't see in 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 my own in people who are living around me uh, every day there. So yeah, no, but it, it was it was interesting. All right. Well, uh, any questions, Robert? Before we wind down the actual anarchy portion show and get into some Kathleen Turner overdrive for a few minutes. Oh, well, I think I can save my stuff for the KTO. I, I kind of want to get a little less formal and bring up some other stuff. So let's let's just wrap this bad boy up like a like a nice, big, fat Christmas present. All right. Well, this is a Christmas present at your feet, our audience, and uh, a little bit of a teaser from Mr. Johnson regarding what might lie behind that paywall in the old Patreon bonus content that we affectionately called Kathleen Turner Overdrive. So you can get that uh, access at actualanarchy.com slash Patreon. The show notes and more for this episode can be found at actualanarchy.com slash 107. I want to thank Olaf, the anarcho-viking, who is a writer for the site. And we will have a link to all of the articles that he has written over the years. And uh, I think I think uh, he mentioned he might try to write some more stuff uh, for us in the near future. So I, I do look forward to that. And uh, Olaf, thank you so much for being a guest. And let's get into some Kathleen Turner Overdrive. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right, everyone. Peace out. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do